The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with him, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to, to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with them in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Happy uh, 4th of July weekend. Some of you guys got the blessing of like a five-day weekend. I got the blessing of the flu. Um, I want to make one announcement here really quick. If you're on the city... First off, if you're not in the city, let me just tell you that we don't, we really don't do announcements around here. We don't do bulletins. If you've noticed, um, everything, all of our information, all of our, um, announcements are on the city. It's kind of like an online tool, similar to Facebook for our church. You can sign up on our website, sacredcitychurch.com, or you can sign up at the back. Um, but one of the things that we put on there this week, and you're going to be, you need to take note of is we're having our first ever, uh, membership class. So the month of August, on the first three Sundays in August from 3 to 5, we're going to cancel all huddles for leaders in the room. We're canceling all huddles in August. Um, So we're not going to have the Sunday night huddles. We're going to have three weeks in the month of August from 3 to 5 before, hopefully this is uh, after nap time, 
And this is before dinner time. So that's why we went three to five. We have a lot of young families around here at Sacred City. So from three to five, the first three Sundays in the month of August, we're going to do our first ever membership class. Now, um, we're going to answer a lot of questions for you. The process of becoming a member begins on the city. The whole pro- process is kind of organized through the city. So um, we put up a link this week. We put a whole post up on the city. You can follow it. Find out, well, what is church membership? What's the purpose of it? Is it biblical? I'll answer that for you. Yes, it is biblical. Um, my job is to shepherd the sheep that God has placed in my care as, a, as the pastor of Sacred City and the, ch- and the church planner of Sacred City. And guess what? God puts out some really heady things and really heavy things, and he says that I'll be judged by how well I shepherd those who are in my care. Well, for me, one of the first things I ask, well, okay, if I'm judged by, based on how I shepherd those under my care, who are under my care? Is it everybody who comes on Sunday? Is it everybody in the missional community? Is it everybody that calls me their pastor? Shoot, I got guys at the gym that call me their pastor, right? Um, who's under my care? Well, one of the ways for me to know who I am responsible for and the way that God's kind of set it up is through church membership. That um, it, when you are committed with us and you're on mission with us to our cities, you become a member at, at Sacred City Church. So we know who we're on mission towards. We know who, um, I mean, our benevolence ministry, we, we focus prim- first on our family and then the city as a whole. So there's a lot of benefits that go on to being a member. It's a lot of biblical um, reasons for becoming a member. I, I go, we go through all those through the membership process. So we want you to put it on your schedule. Maybe you've been around here for a few months. You just want to find out more about Sacred City. Um, Visitor forum is next week. That's a great place to start, but it's just a little bit to really find out what makes us who we are. What do we believe about the gospel? What's our doctrine? What's our theology? You need to go through um, our membership class. So we're inviting you all to that. Um, if you're a missional community leader, that's man- this is mandatory for us to become members. Um, this is just a, a great opportunity. And then it end- they- the process will end with um, a meeting. We- we'll have a personal meeting with, with myself. And uh, we're just really looking forward to what God's going to do this summer through this membership process and those who want to partner with us and be on mission with us to our city. So um, that's that. It's on the city. You can find it. If you have any questions, just ask me afterwards. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to jump in. Father, it's a gift to be here this morning. It is uh, an act of your sovereignty. Acts 17 says you determine the places that we live and the seasons and times in which we live. You've placed us in this country. You've placed us in this year. It's according to your sovereign hand and your sovereign plan that we're here this, this morning, that we're living in this time and in this country and in this season. And we thank you for it. We thank you for the freedom that this country offers us. Freedom to worship, freedom to gather. So many of our brothers and sisters across the world cannot gather publicly in a gathering like this under threat of persecution and murder and being thrown into jail. And we worship in spirit with them this morning. We lift up our voices and we sing the doxology with millions across the planet who sing the doxology this morning. That we are not just some American invention, but we are a worldwide movement We are the kingdom of God on this earth. We are peace and parcel to that. And we thank you for being here in us and with us this morning. And Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that you've given us, that it's beneficial to study and to pray. And we heard a lot of word this morning. We've we've read a lot of scripture through our liturgy. And God, we, we know it's beneficial to our soul. It's a different pace. It's a different rhythm than what we live in. With our 30-minute television programs and our four-minute songs we listen to on the radio and our ADHD attention spans, 
It's a whole different rhythm when we step into your kingdom and your gathering this morning. And we ask that this gathering and this being under your word and inside the liturgy and a part of your body, that it would shape our souls. It would reshape our souls, how the culture has been bending it. You would bend it back. Help us value you above all things. Help us value deep relationship as part of the body of Christ. Help us see things clearly and hear things clearly. We ask all these things for your glory, that Jesus this morning would be lifted high. Not any man-made self-help programs, not any ways to make our life better and to get what we really want out of God, to use you, to manipulate you, to get what we really want, health, wealth, prosperity, all those things that the world sees as their chief good. We see Jesus as our chief good. Pray that that would be true in our souls and in our minds and in our hearts this morning. In your name, amen. So about two days ago, I got, I got hit with the flu. I know a lot of people in the church are hit with the flu. A lot of people all over the cities are, have been hit with the flu. I feel just weird. I'm going to let you know that. I, so I, maybe this is a disclaimer for whatever I'm going to say today. But I feel weird. That's all I, can, that's all I can say. I've probably had two bowls of chicken noodle soup in the past 36 hours, and that might be why, but we're going to go for it. We're going to do this, and hopefully I don't, uh, no body fluids, bodily fluids come up this morning. You guys would love that, wouldn't you? <clears throat> so here we go. It's hot in here too. Or is it just me? Somebody turn down the air if we can figure it out. Today we're going to be talking about um, a different way to live our life, that the Bible primarily talks about two ways. It presents for us two primary ways for human beings to live their lives. All right. Jesus goes on and says in Matthew seven, that there are, that that one way of living, the way that most people follow, I want you to hear this. Jesus says in Matthew seven, the way that most people follow is easy, but this way or this road or this gate ultimately leads to destruction. And Jesus is speaking of hell, like eternal hell, like forever and ever in a hot, hot, hot place, right? He speaks of that as destruction. Jesus called this way the wide gate or the easy path. Americans, we need to understand this. But then Jesus goes on to say, but there's another way to live. This is the hard way. And the narrow gate, but this gate in this way leads to life in the words of Jesus, but only actually only a few find it. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying this. What I found personally and, and being a missionary here in the Quad Cities is talking to my friends and talking to people as I'm on mission towards them is so many people don't have a problem with Jesus. They have a problem with the church. That's what they say. Until you present something like this to them. Well, this is what Jesus said. That the, there's an easy way and there's a wide gate that many follow and that way leads to hell. But then there's this narrow way and this hard path that leads to life. Jesus says there are two ways you can live your life. You can go with the masses or you can follow him. You can walk the easy and well-worn path that eventually leads to destruction, or you can take the hard path with the narrow gate that only a few choose to walk. But the path of Jesus leads to life and life eternal. Now, for the average Bible reader, or the average what I call cultural Christian, 
This two-path approach to life is pretty common understanding, right? But most of the time, I think it's confused with stereotypes. And therefore, Jesus' true meaning is completely lost on us. Jesus isn't saying those who believe in Jesus are following me on the path. Do we, I hope we see. Jesus isn't saying those who believe in me are walking the narrow road and they're going to find the way. That's not what he's saying. Jesus goes on to, to kind of unfold this saying in three distinct parables right after making this statement in Matthew 7. See, in the Quad Cities, many of us believe that we are following Jesus. We believe that we're walking on his path just because we believe in him. Just because we attend a worship gathering or have a conservative, have conservative moral values. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus follows up this statement about having two possible paths in life with three different warnings, all with similar meanings. He says that a person who is actually on the path of Jesus is one, bearing good fruit, two, doing God's will, and three, hearing the words of Jesus and actually doing them. He says these three distinct things, all saying not, do you believe in Jesus or do you not believe in Jesus, but are you bearing good fruit? Are you obeying God? Are you doing his will? This should really, really, really wake us up this morning. For some of you, the election that happened a few months ago should have really woken you up. Hmm, who should I choose? Who should I choose? A Mormon. Let me just tell you, he's not on our team. Okay? He's not, he's not a Christian. He's not a follower of Jesus. It's a, it's a different religion. Okay? Right? Or the current president, Barack Obama, who can stand before Planned Parenthood and say, God bless you, Planned Parenthood. God bless the murder of innocent children. And what we saw is, what did, guys, guess what? Christians, we, we don't have a guy. <laughs> we, we didn't have a guy. We didn't have a, like, we're, Christians are sitting out there, like, okay, the Mormon or this, right? And I'm not, I can't, I can't judge Barack Obama. I can't judge him. I'm not going to. But we realize, like, okay, we're out of the race now, right? Our, our, our poll, our opinions, our votes, Christian minority doesn't really matter anymore. We're on the outside. They don't need us to win elections anymore. And I'm afraid for us that one of the consequences of growing up in America is a country that has been founded on Judeo Christian values is that now we assume far too much. See, we assume that because we have this like affinity for Jesus, we think he's a good guy, he was a good moral teacher or a great role model, that now we're actually Christians. But that's not the case. See, Christians, let me hear, let me, let, Christians actually love God. Christians actually cherish their Savior. 
Christians walk the hard path and embrace a sacrificial lifestyle that sees their own life as no longer their own. But now as, as a seed, their life is a seed in the hands of God that God can sow it wherever he wants. God can do whatever he wants with their life. God, you wanted me to go to Afghanistan? I'll go. You want me to go to Africa? I'll go. Like the great missionary Hudson Taylor. You want me to go to China? Spend me for China, Lord. Spend me for China. And he spent 70 years of his life in China for the sake of the gospel. That's what a Christian is. True followers of Jesus have given up their desire to run their own life. To choose their own destiny and to determine their own path. See, this is so, right, this is so shocking. Followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus. Can you freaking believe that? This is deep theology this morning, isn't it? Well, guess what? If I'm following Jesus, who's determining the way I'm walking? Who? Jesus. He turned left. Well, which way should I go? Left. He picked up the pace a little bit. What should I do? Well, I better get going. He slowed down. He took a break. What should I do? See, Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, actually follow Jesus. Their rhythm of life looks the way his rhythm looked. Their gait, their stance, their posture towards the world looks the way his did. Their priorities looks the way his did. Is this shocking to us? See, I think this is something that the Quad Cities, that our culture, that our nation desperately needs to hear. You cannot be a Christian without actually following Christ. See, the wide and easy way is the way of comfort. It's the way of the masses. It's the way that says, I will choose to live my life how I see fit. I like Jesus. He's a good role model. He's good for my kids. But let's not get too carried away. See, in a sense, what you're really saying, when you go, I want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of everything else. I want enough Jesus that'll make my kids moral. I want enough Jesus where I feel like I'm not going to hell. I want enough Jesus where I can, I want a little bit of the benefits. Maybe community will be good if I go through a hard time and there are people who can cook me dinner. That'd be nice to have. I'd like to have that part of Christianity, right? You mean when, when people give birth, you like take care of all their meals for like a week or so? That's cool. I'll, I want to be a Christian. I mean, when you suffer, you have a group of people that come and suffer together? Yeah, we do. It is a benefit. I mean, when you get sick, like your whole mission community gets sick? Yeah. That does happen. We live in community. But when you say, I want a piece of Christianity, or I want the fruits of Christianity, or I want some of the benefits of Christianity, but I don't want to really follow your Jesus. I don't want to really follow the ways of Christ. What you're really saying what you're really saying I can like Jesus but I can still be in control with, of my life. I can have a little bit of Jesus and be in control. Or I can like Jesus and still be my own God. See, the wide and easy way is the way of comfort. 
It is the way of the masses, but it's the way of destruction. That's wide path thinking. I can take a little bit of secular humanism, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of Hinduism, and a little bit of Jesus, and I can determine for myself how I will live. I fear that many of us in this room actually practice this religion. And this is called, and I'm going to tell you, this is where our nation is headed. And I'm not a doomsday prophet. Okay? Look to Europe. Look to Western Europe where we're less than 3% are professing evangelical Christians. 3%. That's where we're headed. Right now, recent polling data comes out, 7% of the United States is actually professing and acting Christians, 7% go to church, read their Bible, serve it all. Right. The majority of us, we claim Christ on our lips, but we actually practice what's called religious pluralism. It's the easy way. Take what you like from the world's religion and make up your own parents. This, you need to understand what I'm talking about today because this is what, this is the cultural waters that we're swimming in. This is what we're raising our kids in right now. Take a little bit of Jesus, throw in some evolution, add a dash of pagan sexuality, drop in some Eastern yoga, plus a splash of tolerance, lather it all up with a big old batch of American materialism and out pops the current religious pluralism or religion of our day. This sacred city is the wide path that Jesus warned us about and it leads to destruction. It's easy, but it's not the way of Jesus. And I want us at sacred city. I want us to be aware of this wide path thinking because it's literally the cultural water that we're swimming in. It's representative of of the beliefs of the majority of those around us. And more than likely, it is exactly where our country is headed. It's what our kids are being taught in school. And we need to directly confront these beliefs with the gospel. Hmm, I'm not going to go there. Jesus was crystal clear when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not what Hinduism teaches. Hinduism, don't follow me, follow my teaching. Jesus said, no, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the narrow gate. He is the hard path. And now listen, for us, with our culturally soaked ears, or if not you, then your kids for sure, that sounds really intolerant. What do you mean Jesus is the only way? What do you mean following Jesus is the only right way? Why does he have the right to say this is the only way and every other world religion is wrong? Why does God say this way, you can only practice sexuality this way in a heterosexual covenant of marriage? Right? God says this is the only way. Why? Why is that the only way? How does he have the right to say that? So this is where we get today. This is the big question that we're going to answer. I hope we, we can answer. 
And this is the question of our day. If you don't, nobody ever says it, but this is what's under all of the questions of religious pluralism. And, and that's your truth, but I can have my own truth. And, and can't we just all hold hands and sing Kumbaya and get along at the same time, right? Can't we just do that? Does God have the right to be God? That's a lot deeper question than what you think at first. Does God have the right to be God? Listen, can God tell us no? Can he say this is good and this is not? This is true and this is false. Can God do that? Does he have the right to do that? Can God say, this is the only way to salvation. This is the only way to use your sexuality. This is the only way to be fulfilled on this planet. This is the only way to get to heaven. Can God do that? Does God have the right to be God? Answering that question. See, that's the big, that's the big question in our hearts. Today we're going to see from the life of Joseph that Joseph answered that question in the affirmative. See, Joseph said that God, yes, God has the right to be God. And after answering that question truthfully in his heart and in his life, it filled Joseph. Listen, that one singular question, answering it truthfully in his heart, filled Joseph with the power that enabled him to live through immense suffering, terrible disappointments. But it positioned him, answering that question, eventually positioned him to eventually become the prime minister of Egypt. That's coming in the next couple of weeks. Answering that question in his heart that, yes, God has the right to be God and God has the right to do things in the best way that he sees fit. It gave Joseph an unshakable foundation of faith that brought him safely from the pit to the palace. Where are you at today with that question? Does God have the right to be God in your life? Maybe you're here this morning and you're incredibly frustrated with him. Maybe you think that all the difficulty in your life is proof that God cannot be trusted. He he doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe it's proof to you that you need to be in control and you need to take your life by the reins. and You need to force your will to make it happen in our world. Is that where you are? Can't trust God. So you need to run your life. Let's look to Joseph. If you have your Bibles, open up Genesis chapter 40. If you don't have your Bibles, open up your fake Bible on your iPhone. Genesis chapter 40, you can download. Sacred City has their own app in the, in the, in the smart, whatever, app store thing. Download it there. But let's follow along with us. Genesis chapter 40. Before I jump in, brief backstory for those of you who haven't been with us. Joseph was a brash. You remember this? Joseph, Joseph was a brash and arrogant young man. He had a dream from God, though. God gave him this awesome dream. Where he saw himself as a young man. He saw himself stand up and all of his brothers bowed down and worshiped him. And Joseph, being an arrogant, 
foolish young man went to his brother and said, hey, guys, listen, what, what, do you think this, what do you think this dream means? In this dream, I saw myself standing up. And you guys were all bowing down and worshiping me and rubbing my feet. What do you think that meant? You think that meant anything? I know what it meant. I mean, you're going to die. That's what the brothers basically said. Brothers plot. They try to, they throw him in a pit. They were going to kill him, but it said they throw him in a pit. And then they save, then they sell him off into the slave trade, right? Lie to his dad, tell his dad that he's died, show him the coat with blood on it. And he gets sold off into slavery. <clears throat> then we saw last week, Joseph was sold into slavery. But then what happened? He got exalted. Now listen, first off, let me tell you this. Wide path thinking, wide path thinking would blame God for all the bad things that happened in Joseph's life. Would be frustrated with God. Right? But Moses, who is the narrator of this book of Genesis, he tells us a different perspective. He shows us the narrow path thinking when he says over and over, but the Lord was with Joseph, but the Lord, it's really the, the, the string that's tying this whole narrative together. It's this, it's the strand that goes through the whole narrative over and over. But the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery, but the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph was then exalted to a high position in the house of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, because the Lord was with him. Joseph was falsely accused of rape and then thrown into the dungeons. But the Lord was with Joseph. So right away, this should confront the wrong thinking that plagues us, that says, if things are going badly for me in the moment, then God must have abandoned me. This should confront that thinking. If, if I've lost my job, if my wife's off the rails, if my kids are going crazy, if we're having arguments and disagreement and there's strife in, a, in my relationships and things are really hard and things are really difficult, God must not care about me. God must have abandoned me. This should confront that because the, the, the narrator is telling us over and over and over, bad things are happening, the Lord is with him. Bad things are happening, the Lord is with him. See, God is at work here. God knows what it's going to take to make Joseph into the man he needs to be when his future opportunity arises. Isn't this the most difficult part about being a parent? Really understanding what is it going to take to shape this little person into a well-rounded individual that knows how to use their gifts and you're kind of watching your kid and figuring out where they're gifted and how they're gifted and how you can encourage things and how you need to put some things out, right? Don't, that's really bad. That's going to go bad for him in the future. I've got to kill that thing, right? Both of my kids the other day, I can't even remember what it was, but Javin comes down the stairs and says, I'm awesome. And Zoe goes, well, I'm beautiful. And I'm like, we want to encourage that, but we need to temper that a little bit. Right? Get that from their mom, probably. But listen, I don't know what it's going to take to make my, to shape my kid, right? 
I'm, I'm trusting. I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. I'm asking God for wisdom. I'm reading a lot of books about how people have done it in the past. I'm, I'm reading the scripture as you know, passionately and as, as in-depth as possible. But I don't know exactly what it's going to take to make my kid into a follower, quote-unquote, a follower of Christ. Only, only God can do that. But God knows. And God's looking at Joseph. And listen to me. This, this will change your life if you really believe it. If you give God the right to be God, God says, I need to make a prime minister. And the way, the only way I can make the prime minister, the type of prime minister of Egypt that I need, the only way I can make this man with a depth of character and a wealth of humility, the only way I can do it is in a dungeon. It's the only way I can do it. So for Joseph, the way up starts by going down. Humiliation must precede exaltation. God is building a future prime minister. He's creating a strong leader. And that's done only in the crucible of affliction. So chapter 40, this is how it starts off. (laughs) So after some time, so after time, or sometime after this, okay, sometime after this, Let me tell you what that sometime is. 11 freaking years. Sometime after this. Joseph has been accused of rape, thrown into the dungeon. He was not guilty. He's now been in slavery and or in prison in the dungeon for 11 years. A decade of his life. And not just any decade. This is the 20s. (laughs) This is like our culture's second adolescence. Now, we used to have like from 10 to 20, you know, you had this kind of right to be foolish. Not really. Now we have 20 to 30. We just keep pushing that off. His good years, right? 20 to 30. Joseph spent his good years in the pit in affliction. Now, listen, I heard um, the president of Grace University spoke at our graduation. And he said this. Our culture lies to us, men, and tells us that 20 to 40 is our best generation. It's the generation where we should be getting out and we should be achieving, we should be accomplishing, we should be building wealth and building a fortune and making things happen. And he says it's absolute, it's absolutely not true. And if you look biblically, the years from really, you could go zero to 20 and then 20 to 40, those years, those first 40 years of your life are preparation for the next 20. And from 40 to 60, if you live your life right, from 40 to 60 can be the most prosperous and most beneficial and most fruitful years of your life. Think of this. This is crazy. I'm, I'm 34 years old, right? Yes. Is that correct? I am 34 years old. You know, I'm getting, up, I'm getting up there. Listen, and I, if I was, if I was 40, more than likely this church would be growing faster and things would be going better and, and things would be more well, you know, better programs and well-organized. Why? Because you don't get the best part of my time. I got three little kids. I got three little kids. I'm in the season of life where I'm loving my wife and I'm trying to raise up these kids and they demand a lot of time and a lot of attention. But when you're typically, when you're 40 to 60, those kids are grown up a little bit. They need a lot less of your time. 
right? You've got a lot more free time. You've probably, you know, you've, you've worked in a job long enough that when between 40 and 60, you're a little more comfortable, let's just say, especially in our society, you're a little more comfortable. You got a little more margin in your life. And we're going to see that kind of like in Joseph's life is this, this twenties, this decade of his life. It's all about preparation for the future. It's not about getting right now. 20 year olds don't graduate school. Go buy a new car. Foolish. Don't do it. You're preparing for the future. Pay off those student loans right away. You're preparing for the future. Right? Your 20s is preparation, let me tell you. And if you live your 20s right and your 30s right, from 40 to 60, you can be incredibly fruitful for the kingdom of God. But if you live it wrong, you're going to be paying off that debt for the rest of your life. Right? The student loan debt, the credit card debt, because you went a little wild after college. Right? You're going to be on your second, third marriage because you can't really focus on anything. Like, live it right. And what we see in Joseph's life here is he's, God takes him in his 20s, puts him in a prison, puts him in a dungeon for a decade. Can, we, can you just sit on that? Can you ponder that for a moment? Away from his family. Completely different country. Away from all the worshipers of God. In slavery and in a dungeon with this God-given dream of future exaltation in his mind. But nothing but darkness in his eyes. A dream at 17. He's now 30. And nothing but darkness and stankiness of a dungeon. Right? What happens to a person when they're surrounded by such desolate circumstances? Generally, two things can happen. To overly simplify things, they either get better or they get bitter. Right? They either get offended at God and begin to shake their fists at him. Or they get drawn into this new closeness with him. Now, um, I don't know if you've ever heard, if you've ever, anybody here ever seen the movie To End All Wars? Have you ever seen the movie To End All Wars? Ooh, good. I gave you a homework assignment. Go home. It's on Netflix. It's got Kiefer Sutherland in it. It's a great movie. All right. It's from 2001. This is what, it's a story. It's a true story of a guy named Ernest Gordon. Um, Ernest Gordon was a native of Scotland. He was an officer in the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders in World War II. Okay, and what happened was, um, if you've ever heard of, you know, he was in Malaysia. And have you ever heard of the, the, the um, it's called the Bridge Over the River Kwai or um, the Miracle on the River Kwai. But they were forced, the prisoners, the POWs, were forced to build um, this railway through swampland and the PO and, and the, the army was so awful. The Malaysians were so cruel that they starved them to death, that they would beat them to death, that they would cru- literally crucify, um, prisoners of war. It's an absolutely horrible, um, testimony of just the atrocities of war and just the brutality of the regime. And Ernest Gordon was a commander, a company commander in the second battalion, And what happened was he found himself as a prisoner of war. He was not a believer. He was an agnostic, which means he didn't really believe in anything. And he found, he got really, really sick. And there's pictures of him, but I didn't want to put the pictures up because 
I mean, we're, it looks like the Holocaust, you know, if you've seen pictures of the Holocaust, that shredded, that just all bones. And they had this, um, this tent where when a person got sick, they would just put them there to die. They would not give them food, not give them water, not give them anything, and just let them die. Well, these two men, um, a Methodist named Dusty Miller, who was a gardener. That's what he was. Before he joined the war, he was a gardener. He had no theological background. He had no theological training. He was just a gardener. And then a a Roman Catholic named, um, well, they called him Dinty Dinty Moore. And they, they, at risk of themselves, because they were... These guys were so sick, they kind of went in and gave him 24-hour care. They would, they would take their rations, and they would go in, and they would give him their rations and literally starve themselves. They would clean and wash him. And, and what happened was, miraculously, God healed Ernest Gordon. I mean, you, if you saw pictures, you'd be overwhelmed. God healed him. Now, what happened was this brought this this new vibrancy of faith to these POWs. They saw God miraculously heal someone. And um, Dusty Miller, the simple gardener, he literally would say, guys, I don't know. I didn't really pay attention in church. (laughs) Um, I didn't really read any theological books. I didn't really read my Bible that much. So I can't teach you. Because all the prisoners are saying, if God is real, then why would we be going through this suffering? If God is real, why would he put us here? Why would he allow us to go through this horrible time? Right? And what happens was, is they, they smuggle this Bible in, they get this Bible, and this new convert, Ernest Gordon, begins, they, they literally create a seminary in this POW camp. And it gives the prisoners the one thing that prisoners have to have to survive, and that's hope. But it gives them more than that. They start studying what does it mean to love our neighbor when Jesus said that. When Jesus said, love your enemies, what does that mean for us really? And these enemies, we're not just talking about enemies that that talk bad about you, like your neighbor, right, who talks bad about you for having all the parties or doing whatever you do. We're talking about enemies who beat, who kill at will, who when a person faints because they've had lack of food, behead them on the railway. Right? We're talking about horrible atrocities. And they're like, what does it mean for us to really believe that Jesus meant us, that we're meant to love our enemies? And at the end of the movie, when they, have a, they, they get rescued finally, and these men are doing, they're doing a lot better, and they have an opportunity to kill the, the guard who's, who did most of the atrocity, who killed many of their friends and many of their fellow POWs. They have the opportunity to take him out. They have the opportunity to kill him. And one of them wants to. One of the ones that's been holding out. He's not a believer. He's been holding out. And Ernest takes his place and he gets in front of him and he do it, won't let him do it. He won't let him kill him. And it's a powerful story of how in the most intense suffering, in the most horrible circumstances, the gospel can take root and it can shape a man. And what happens is this Ernest Gordon, he goes on to become the dean for, I think, 23 years of Princeton Seminary. And the dean of, of Princeton. Out of this POW camp, wasn't a believer, he becomes the dean of Princeton University. I mean, it's just how in a horrible situation does God work in the human heart to change men? It's a miraculous story. And I do go get it, man. Go read, go watch it. It's a little, you know, they take a little bit of um, liberty with the movie, but it's, but it's a great movie. And it's just a testament to what's going on right here with Joseph. Joseph's suffering 
has actually made him better. We see this right away. Look at this. Let's keep reading. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So let me just tell you this. Here's here's the two jobs. One guy's a cupbearer. One guy's uh, the chief baker. The cupbearer, he's got, a, he's got an easy job. He tastes all the wine that's given to the king to make determine what's the best. The that one minor downfall of the job was the reason he has this job is to make sure no one's trying to kill him. Right? That nobody's poisoned the king's wine. Well, unfortunately, the only way you find out if the wine is poisoned or not is after the fact. Right? You taste it. No, I think, okay, it's bad wine. Right? So something happened. Maybe he gave him bad wine. Maybe he brought out the box, you know, the box stuff. I don't know what happened. But something happened where he offended the king. He did something wrong, and, and Pharaoh sends him, sends him to the dungeons. Now, the other guy is the chief baker. He does the exact same thing. He bakes all these cakes, he, and he provides them to the king. And he has to eat the, he has to eat the cake to make sure that, it's not, that nobody's trying to kill him. All right, so both these guys that have these prominent jobs, literally the right and left-hand um, men for the king, both of them commit an offense, they get sent to prison. Okay, let's keep reading. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. He's been there now 11 years. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. So Joseph is in jail and basically gets the keys to the jail. He's like, you're in jail, but you're, you're, your character is such outstanding. I can't, you know, you're, you're such a man of God. The Lord is with you. Here's the keys. You have to stay here. You have to live in the dungeon, but you're kind of in charge. Let's keep reading. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night, they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Now, let's just see this right here. He saw that they were troubled. Verse 7. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces so downcast today? Now, can you put yourself in this situation? See, I, I've never been in prison. I've never been in a dungeon. But in my mind, this seems really odd. You've been in slavery or prison now for 11 years, and two new guys look sad. Now, I don't think empathy runs real deep in such situations. Oh, are you sad? Do you miss mommy? Right? Like, that's how I'm thinking. Like, two new guys come in, they're sad. You want to talk about sadness? I've been here for 11 years. Right? And then the the classic, well, I'm innocent. (laughs) Everybody's innocent in prison, right? Like, this story just starts going, I didn't do it. I was framed. Right? This whole story. But we don't see that with Joseph. See, I don't think empathy runs very deep in such situations, but with Joseph, we see something new. We see a new softness in Joseph. He's got um, a redemptive edge now. He's concerned with someone other than himself. Before, he just walked up to his brothers and go, brothers, what do you think this dream means? Moron, right? He didn't care what everybody thought. It was all about him. He was only concerned with his desires and his dreams. And now in this situation, we see him say, Why? what's up, guys? Why are you guys? This just seems so weird. In prison. Why are you guys so sad? Right? He's got a redemptive edge, though. This kind of makes sense because as humility is being developed, he's starting to think about other people. 
See, C.S. Lewis says that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm so bad. Oh, I'm an idiot. Oh, I'm, woe is me. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. I just think about other people. I think about their opinions and their needs and their des- I think about other people. We see that happening in Joseph. But we see something else as well. Joseph isn't just empathetic and humble and kind of softer now. In the words of Kent Hughes, now he has a God reflex. I love this. Let's keep reading. Uh, Why are your faces downcast today? Verse 8. They said to him, well, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. See, as soon as the cupbearer and the baker state their situation, Joseph references God. Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. See, we all know that what people do in reflex is very revealing of what is within. And we think, oh, well, we're reading the Bible. Of course he's going to talk about God. But no, 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 no. Joseph is the only God believer here. Joseph is living in a plural nation like us. Egypt was the most powerful nation for 1,300 years of the world's existence. I mean, it was the most dominant nation ever in history. Okay, 1,300 years it ruled. Okay, and they they believed in all kinds of God. They believed Pharaoh himself was a God. They believed the Nile was a God. They believed frogs were a God. They believed in all these different gods. They had all these different religions and ways. So when when he speaks into that culture and he says, Oh, don't you know that dreams, they belong to God? What the people would have said was, actually, no, we didn't know that. I mean, there's one God. We didn't know that. I mean, there's one God that can answer dreams. No, we didn't know that. Pharaoh had all kind of dream interpretations. They literally have books in history that you can read now on on the way um, Egyptians would interpret their dreams. But God, but now in the dungeon, in the dark, in the solitude, in the ugliness of his life, Joseph has begun, begun to be softened. And he's also now got this God reflex. He's looking for what we would say is a gospel window. He's looking for an opportunity to speak truth into somebody's life. So he does. Joseph's split second response revealed a profoundly God dependent man. His decade of ups and mostly downs had created an intimate dependence on God. Turning to God was now the habit of his mind. And this is an essential for godly leadership. Men, for being the leader of your home. Having this God reflex. What does scripture say? What does God want? It's an essential. So we can see here now that God is at work in Joseph. He's molding Joseph into a great man, but he's doing it in the dark and dank recesses of an Egyptian dungeon. But again, let's return to our original question. Does God have the right to do that? Does God have the right, as scripture says, to humble one and to exalt another? Does God have the right to determine that I'm born in the Quad Cities, someone else is born in sub-Saharan Africa? That I'm born in a democratically free country and someone else is born into communism? Does God have the right to lift one up and bring one down? Does God have the right to give and take life? See, if Joseph says no, the story ends. 
He would immediately begin to distance himself from God, to push away. His heart would get hard. The questions would begin to fly. How could you allow this to happen, God? I'm your man. You gave me a dream. If you're a loving God, how could you allow this to happen? How could you put your boy in prison like this? You gave me a dream. Now look where I am. You say you chose me, but now you've allowed me to spend the last 11 years of my life in slavery. God, I got the degree. I chased after the dream and now I can't find a job. God, I went after the woman. I didn't get her. God, uh, the marriage is falling apart. God, the kids, God, the, all of the bad negative things that happen in our life. But that's not what Joseph did because the Lord was with him. But let's see what happens next. Verse nine. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, which is actually Pharaoh's birthday, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Now listen, only remember me when it is well with you and please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews and here also I've done nothing that they should put me in the pit. Okay, so... Cupbearer tells Joseph his dream. Joseph hears from God. Joseph says, all right, here's the dream. Good news for you, right? In three days, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and he's going to restore you to the place that you were, okay? Things are going to go well for you. Good news. Now, here's the only thing. When you get there, when things go well, remember your boy Joseph, right? God God gave you this dream. God spoke through me. It's going to come true. Remember me and tell Pharaoh, hey, I'm here. I'm innocent. I'm a good guy. I need to be brought out of prison. What's the cupbearer? Oh, sure, brother. You be- How could I ever forget you? You're my boy. How can I forget my boy? Right? Let's see what happens. Well, actually, there's, some, there's a second dream first. It's verse 16. <laughs> when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph. So both these guys have had a dream. Now listen, speaking truth when it's positive is really easy. Okay? Hey, Jesus will forgive your sins. That's great news. No sin is too great for God. The blood of Jesus Christ can cover them all. He will adopt any and all if you respond to him and you lay your life down and you take up his cross. And that's good news. But what's bad news is the other half of scripture, let's just say, or the complimenting side of scripture that says we, outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. Some scriptures even say that God hates certain people that shake their fist at him, that he's an enemy to them. That hell is eternal and lasts forever. And there's no way out after, the, after we die. That it's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. Like, that's not good news. Right? We don't hear that as good news. But that's truth. 
And some of you, your friends come to you and they have these questions and they have this opportunity. And sometimes you have to tell them the hard news. You have to tell them the hard truth. That's what loving them really means. Telling them the good side, telling them the bad side. If they refuse, every blessing in the Bible comes with conditions. You're blessed if you obey. You're cursed if you do not. And that's what we're going to see right here. So the other guy says, oh, his dream went well. Tell me about my dream now. That went well for him. Tell me about my dream. Well, this... So the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. I'm sure the guy's like, oh, yeah, here we go. In three days, this is this is a pun, and it's hard to get. It's really hard to translate it from the from the original into English. So I'm going to try to help you out here. Um, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree. It's actually not hang you; it's impale you on a tree. So literally, in three days, he's going to lift up your head too, off your body, and then he's going to stick you on a stick. All right. That's literally what he's saying. And then the birds will come and they will eat the flesh from you. Um, let me just say this <laughs> in three days, this is going to happen, right? How awkward are those next three days <laughs> for Joseph? How you doing, buddy? How you doing? I got two days to live, man. How you think? What do you mean? In three days, you just said I'm going to be impaled on a stick. How do you think I'd do it? Like, how awkward is that to be in relationship with Joseph on those, three, those next three days? Right? Let's keep, look what happens. On the third day, which, Pharaoh's birth, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, and he lifted up the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, or impaled him is the better term, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer, oh no, he didn't. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Can, I, can you see what happens here? He, he interprets their dreams. They both come true exactly how he predicted, but the chief cupbearer forgot him. And, he's, and now, what we lead from the... We learn from chapter 41, the first verse, he's going to spend another two years in the dungeon. Insult to injury. I think for me, I would be gone all the way before this more than likely, but this has got to be like the last straw. This should be the place where we see Joseph give up on God. This is the place where I personally have seen dozens, maybe even hundreds of people walk away from God. God's not doing what I want him to do. Therefore, he's either not good or he's not powerful. He let this horrible thing happen to me. He let my marriage fall apart. He let my kid run away from Jesus. He let my business collapse. I didn't get the job. I don't understand my sexuality and the intensity of my desires. I'm not getting the opportunities that I thought I should be getting. And it's in this moment when we feel like God is running off script, when he's allowing things to happen that we don't like or we don't understand. It's in this moment when we need to seriously ask ourselves, does God have the right to be God?
St. Augustine, a guy who lived about 1,500 years ago, he said this. If you believe what you like in the Gospels, so if you believe what you like in the Bible, and you reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospels you believe, but yourself. If you take what you like out of the Bible, or you take what you like out of Christianity, and you take what you like out of Hinduism and about a, all this new age and mysticism and materialism, if you take what you like and you bring it all together and you say, this is my religion, guess who's God in that scenario? You. You are now the ultimate arbiter of truth. You determine what is true and what is not. And your faith is in yourself. It's an interesting point. And what Augustine is getting at, and what we're learning from Joseph here this morning, is that if God cannot cross your will, if God can't say no, that's not true, that's not reality, stop that. If God can't say that, then he's not God, you are. See, what we're seeing is Joseph in the crucible of affliction is learning how to surrender his will. And this is foundational, very beginning, foundational to the life of a Christian. Coming to Christ is about surrendering your will. Giving up. It's scary. Yes, it's scary. Giving up your rights. Giving your whole life to him. It's not simply praying a prayer and then going on life as usual. When we fight this, and we do, every day we fight this, right? I'm afraid of surrendering my will. I don't want to. What we're really saying is, in essence, come on, what I really want, how can I be happy and still be in control? How can I be happy and still be in control of my life? And Jesus clearly says, you can't. You can't. Happiness comes, true happiness, eternal happiness, comes from giving up your control of your life. Rotting away. We're learning this from Joseph here. Rotting away in this awful jail cell, away from the ones he loved, all alone for now 13 years, Joseph learns the prayer of the narrow path. He learns the prayer of Christ. Not my will, but yours be done. If you remember Jesus in the Gospels, he prayed this prayer as he was on his way to the cross in the garden. He knew what was awaiting him. And he was, the Bible said he was overwhelmed with grief so much. He was so afraid. He was so, um, in, in so much anxious toil. That his, literally his capillaries burst in his face. In his face and his, his sweat became blood. He was overwhelmed with grief. He cried out to God in that moment when things were his darkest, when he felt alone, when he felt literally separated from the Trinity for the first time. He felt like God had turned his back on him. He saw the cross awaiting him and the death and all the, you know, the slander and the beating and the crucifixion. He saw all that waiting for him. And he said this, God, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. 
What is that? That's a cry. God, your way looks hard. God, I don't understand what's going on. If you're, if any other way is possible to save humanity, do it. This way looks really hard. This cup looks undrinkable. This looks too difficult. This path is too narrow. God, if there's any other way, do it. But he doesn't stop his prayer there. He follows that immediately up. And he says, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But not my will. Your will be done. That's how we pray as Christians. Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, dying on the cross, shows us what God can do with the darkest moments of our lives. We're not omniscient. None of us in this room are all-knowing. We have no idea what God is doing right now in the dark moments of our life. What's he preparing us for? What's he working out? But looking at Jesus, we can see that God can take the most painful and excruciating moments and use them to accomplish his will, which is better than we can imagine. See, after the cross comes the resurrection. The darkest moment in Jesus' life we now call Good Friday. Because Easter Sunday comes. After humiliation for Joseph will come exaltation. We get to see that next week. For Joseph, for Jesus, and for us, if we follow in their footsteps and we lay down our will. If we can say, not my will, but your will be done. Being or becoming a Christian, see, is not about, not formally and first and primarily about morality. It's not about behavior. It's not about effort or doing good things. It's about surrender. Many of you in this room, you're Americans, you work hard, you get that. If I gave you a list, this is how you earn heaven, this is how you get to heaven, just do these things. You'd jump through those hoops probably. But that's not what it's about. The gospel is contrary to what we've been taught as Americans. Do Americans like to surrender? (laughs) Right? We don't like to surrender. But that's what it's about, being Christian. I surrender my will. Saying to God, I want your will and not mine. I will walk your path and not mine. Now, many of you in this room, this is it as I close. You say, but why? Why? Why do I have to surrender? Why can't I have things my way? Why do I have to have God's path and not, and Jesus path and not my own? Why can't I determine for myself where I go and who I love and who I, and, and the, just the direction and the course of my life? Tim Keller says this in his book, The Reason for God. Hell is a trajectory of the soul. Listen, hell is a trajectory of the soul. Living in a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. That's what hell is. Living in a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Now, C.S. Lewis says that it's not a question of God actually sending us to hell. In each of us, this is what Lewis says, in each of us there is something that is growing that will be hell unless it's nipped in the bud. 
Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. That all God does in the end is give men up to what they most want. Freedom from himself. Lewis writes, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God. Or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it, Lewis says. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Only two types of people, those to whom, those whom say, God, your will be done in my life. Or those to whom God says to them, your will be done. When we see things in this light, suffering and, be, and, and letting God, I use this term, and letting God be God and accomplishing his purposes in ways that frustrate our plans. When we can see things in this light, it's actually a gift to us. It's a smelling salt that is meant to wake us up from our selfish dreams of glorification. Our selfish ideas and concepts that we can be God in our own life. In the end, isn't that what the struggle is all about anyway? We just want to be glorified right now. We want to be all powerful right now. But God will not share his glory with any man. Not in the here and now, at least. But here's the truth of Christianity. The glorification is coming. If we humble ourselves now, seek not our way, but God's way now, we'll be glorified upon death. We'll be glorified upon Christ returning. A glory that we can't even imagine right now. A union with Christ that we can't even fathom what it's going to look like. So where are you at right now? Whose path are you walking right now? Are you laying down your life like Jesus said and embracing the cross that he gave us? Or are you picking and choosing and determining your own religion? I pray this morning that you see the brilliance of the gospel. You see the brilliance of, of set, setting back and the power that comes to a person that says, you know what, God has the right to be God. And I know like Joseph, finds, like Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, what all you guys meant to destroy me, God was using for my good. That's what the Christian gets to say. Every evil thing that happened in your life, every difficult, every hard circumstance, God is at work for your good. What truth. And we get to see the brilliant, the most clear display of that when we look in the gospel and we look to the cross. And as we come to celebrate the Lord's table, that's what we're remembering. The darkest day in human history, when the sinless Son of God was crucified, is now called Good Friday. The day where all of our sins can be washed away once and forever. Past, present, future sins done with. When Jesus hangs on the cross, he doesn't say, almost done. He said, it is finished. If you'd bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, I thank you for finishing our salvation. I thank you for completing it. I thank you for being a God who's God above all and over all and through all and in all. That you are in control of all things. And I pray today, those of us who are walking through difficulty and walking through dark seasons, that they would grasp on to this truth that you are in it, that you are above it, that you are working through it, 
and that you are working all things out for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And for those of us in this room, Father, that have never embraced the gospel, they've never believed the gospel, they're not Christians, maybe they're outside and they're looking in and just checking it out, I pray that you would do something in their mind and in their heart that they would um, see how beautiful you are, they would see how true your story is, they would see how um, the strength that it provides, the, just the, the goodness of it. And I pray that this day they would turn from their way of wanting to be God and wanting to be in control of their life and they would embrace the way of surrender, the way of Christ. I pray that you would communicate this to us anew and afresh as we partake in, in, in the supper this afternoon. In Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen.